0: Good evening. I'm so happy you all could join us tonight. My name is Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Director of Programs and Communications here at the Catholic Information Center. And on behalf of the CIC and our Director, Father Charles Trulos, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Reverend Wilson Miss Campbell, author of The American Priest, The Ambitious Life and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburgh. Father Miss Campbell is a priest in the Congregation of Holy Cross and a professor of history at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. He is an Australian native and was educated at the University of Queensland and then at Notre Dame. Father Miss Campbell has been a priest for over 30 years, and his primary research interests are American foreign policy since World War II and the role of Catholics in 20th century U.S. politics and foreign relations. He has published a number of important books and articles in these areas as well. Father Miss Campbell has notable interest in the areas of Catholic higher education and Catholics in public life. Tonight, he will lead us in a discussion on his new book, *American Priests: The Ambitious Life and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburgh*, and outline how, how Father Hesburgh's life has worked to help to illuminate the journey that the Catholic Church has traversed over the second half of the 20th century. And with that, please join me in welcoming Father Bill Miss Campbell.
1: Look, uh, thanks very much to uh, Rosemary and thanks to Father Charles and uh, other folks here at the Catholic Information Center for inviting me here to speak tonight. I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity. Uh, I, of course, want to thank each one of you guys for coming on uh, this uh, evening. I'm sure there are other good possibilities that you had uh, before you. It's a pleasure to look out and see some of my former students and uh, folks whose uh, weddings I presided at, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I appreciate your loyalty uh, coming for, uh, for me this evening. Uh, I, uh, I'll speak for a while and try and give you a sense of uh, my book and its sort of principal conclusions, And then I hope, I I certainly planned it, that there's some good time for some question and uh, answer because uh, one of the benefits of speaking to a group like this with a lot of folks who have Notre Dame uh, connections, some even willing to to show their ND insignia, etc., is that uh, you all have your experiences, perhaps of the the university and perhaps of Father Hesburgh, so we can uh, engage in some uh, good discussion. So uh, I've given my talk the title. uh, That's the title of the book. You see before you, American Priest, The Ambitious Life, and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburgh. And uh, I draw, as I say, primarily from the conclusion uh, of the book. Uh, Even if you've read the book, please don't leave. Uh, But, you know, it will be slightly familiar. There are no big new insights that uh, I'm going to uh, share. Now, note I'm reflecting on a person whose presidency of Notre Dame uh, ended well over 30 years ago. Uh, In 1987. And uh, perhaps you will not find what I have to say all that relevant to today's uh, concerns, but historian that I am, uh, I believe that the past has lessons for us if we are willing to learn them. And I hope you might agree. Now, those of you familiar with Notre Dame know that Father Ted, as I always referred to him, Father Ted is lionized on the campus. A number of major buildings and programs are named in his honor and so forth. And in that usual, modest Notre Dame way, some folks even raise the possibility that Father Hesberg might be canonized at some point in the future. This sometimes occurs after folks see the documentary film Hesberg, directed by Patrick Creedon, which was released last year. If any of you have seen it? It's, it's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. The film leans, however, in a certain hagiographic direction, And I would argue elevates excessively Father Ted's contributions, even though it's beautifully made and uh, very well produced and filmed. But I want to suggest that before we rush straight to hagiography in our writing about Father Ted, that we examine his life with some care and in its various dimensions. And this is what I tried to do in American Priest in this book that I've written that was published in March of last year. Uh, I believe that's the work, that's the calling of a historian to evaluate with care and especially for historians at a Catholic university. We need to examine a life in full with its strengths and limitations if you want an exercise in hagiography the film is the place to go. My book is a serious biography. Those who think of Notre Dame as a mere brand to be promoted and protected may not be enthusiastic about the book. Uh, I think that's fair to say. But to those who understand what a genuine Catholic university is, I think, will welcome the book. They understand we're engaged in the pursuit of truth as best we can from the sources we have. Sources are always somewhat limited. And uh, speaking of sources, I should mention that my biography relies in part on interviews that I was able to conduct with Father Hesberg. Up at Lander Lakes, Wisconsin, a rather famous place, uh, I realize uh, that I conducted them back in 1998, which is uh, well over 20 years ago. and it took me a while to complete the biography. What can I say? I'm a slow worker or something. or I needed time to digest it all, to give a measured judgment or that I wanted to write Father Ted's full life, and, of course, he only died a couple of years back. Those interviews were done late at night and with the occasional benefit of an alcoholic beverage (laughs) uh, on both our parts, uh, but they allowed me to penetrate, I believe, beneath or behind the public persona that Father Ted had presented so well in his best-selling memoir, God, Country, Notre Dame. I'll always be grateful to him for giving me that time. We met over a series of six nights. And I suspect that uh, while Father Ted might have some reservations about the book that I eventually wrote, uh, I trust he would see it as a serious book that honestly tries to understand his life and contributions. That's my hope anyway. Well, following his ordination in June of 1943, Father Hesberg stopped by the east door of Sacred Heart Church and he read the dedication above it. What does that dedication say? God, country, Notre Dame. He recalled that right there and then he committed his life to serving that trinity, today, Don, God, country, Notre Dame. He kept his pledge. He kept his pledge. He poured out his energies to serve his nation and his church and, of course, to build up the university with which he was integrally linked for over seven decades. His remarkable life and notable contributions make him unquestionably the most significant figure in the modern history of Notre Dame. And my book not only examines his life and contributions, but it also aims to assess his legacy with recognition of the larger context in which he operated. Father Hespert possessed a powerful belief that he, he personally, was meant to lead Notre Dame to greatness, as a Catholic university. And he had that special charismatic quality that drew others to him to share his vision. His pragmatism, his ability to seize opportunities equipped him well to lead his university in a time of change and expansive growth. He was president, of course, during a time when American higher education boomed in the 50s and 60s, enormous growth. He believed that he personally could make a difference wherever he applied his talents and energies. He also possessed a strong compulsion to break free of the restraints of those whom he judged might thwart his ambitions. His desire for greater independence both from his religious order, Congregation of Holy Cross, of course, to which we both belong, and from the institutional church certainly shaped how he led the university. Didn't want people looking over his shoulder. Ironically, however, he developed a virtual dependence upon the regard and esteem of the liberal establishment in America. This was partially concealed, but it was very real, a real craving, ironically imposed fetters of a different sort on him. Father Ted personified the push for assimilation and acceptance in America, just as notably as did his near contemporary, JFK. By the way, JFK and Father Ted were born four days apart in April of 1917. They were young men assuming uh, responsibilities, of course, uh, in the late 40s, into the 50s, etc. Father Ted's membership in the upper echelons of American power and influence came to mean a great deal to him, and that desire to be part of these elite circles of power colored how he led Notre Dame, as well as the causes that he pursued. He especially sought the regard of the higher education elite for his university and his leadership of it, but his rec- the, the recognition and regard that he sought from that higher education elite, I argue, came with a cost, with a cost, as will be evident, I think, to any who trace his story. Might it even be said of him that he did too much kneeling before the world? I ask you to keep that question in mind. Now, Hesburgh's contributions as priest, public servant, university president, all overlapped and intermingled, of course. Yet it's still possible, at least to some extent, to separate out those strands and to evaluate the nature of his contribution. And this evening, I want to deal first with Father Ted's contributions as a priest and contributor in the church And then with his endeavors as a public servant, service to the nation, and then finally his leadership of Notre Dame. So firstly, priest slash church. We begin with his service as a priest in the Congregation of Holy Cross. He always held his priesthood as the very center of his life, the center of his life. It was the ground of his being, he said and inseparable from his identity. He surely did throughout his life what good priests have always done over the centuries. Proclaimed the word of God, preached about it with authenticity, ministered devoutly the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Of course, he was known for saying mass every day of his life. Well, not Good Friday, but every other day of his life. And uh, for speaking words of forgiveness, consolation, compassion, encouragement, literally thousands of people benefited from his ministry. Over the decades, he assisted and inspired many members of the extended Notre Dame family, students, faculty, alumni, friends, to live their faith more truly. He spoke with genuine care to individuals in all kinds of difficulties and provided a steadying force for many on their earthly journeys. And my book makes all this clear. And any suggestion that the book is a hit job on Father Hesburgh, as was suggested by Ken Woodward in a lengthy review in Commonweal, is complete nonsense. Someone pass that message on to Ken if they see him next. Uh, Father Hesburgh's understanding of the priesthood was of a profound and very traditional sort, and he had no doubts about himself in the role. He was a mediator who stood between God and humanity, a veritable man in the middle who bridged the gap between the human and the divine. This is how he saw himself. He served as a priest during very turbulent times, the 60s and 70s in particular, but his sense of calling in his vocation never wavered. He was a priest forever and one who never called for any radical changes in the priestly role. He was a notable part of the public face of American Catholicism for decades and undoubtedly he presented a favorable image of the priesthood to many non-Catholics impressed by his public service etc just as he was a source of pride for many American Catholics Father Ted's renown however owed much more to his actions in the public sphere, his service to the nation, and to his leadership of the university than to any particular contribution he made within the church. He was not a participant at Vatican II or anything of of the sort. Ironically, his most consequential role was in helping lead the effort of American Catholic universities to distance themselves from any ecclesial oversight through the combination of the transfer of Notre Dame's ownership from the Congregation of Holy Cross, the Land O'Lakes Statement, and his efforts with the International Federation of Catholic Universities, he effectively established his independence from church authority. This fraying, if you will, fraying in the formal relationship between Catholic universities like Notre Dame and the church that provided their very raison d'etre reflected no desire on Father Ted's part to secularize his school. This must be understood. He wanted, however, to make Notre Dame more consonant with and acceptable to the reigning approach in American higher education. Such efforts ultimately prompted a response from the Church in the form of Pope John Paul II's Excorde Corde Ecclesiae, an apostolic constitution that Father Hesberg fought against and viewed with jaundiced eyes. So it's a dedicated priest, dedicated priest, but complicated relationship with the institutional Church. Now to T- Father Ted as national figure as public servant in the United States. His influence proved much more noteworthy here. No other priest served so effectively in the public sphere over such a long period spanning presidential administrations from Eisenhower's through to Clinton's. Some of you may have been in Washington over that period of time. I see my great friend Mr. Dempsey there. But it's a pretty long period of time. From Eisenhower through to the Clinton administration, Father Ted involved every step, every administration. His involvements are all the more extraordinary in that he pursued them while still actively leading his university. There was nothing that he loved better than getting on a plane and leaving South Bend to come to Washington, (laughs) D.C. Now, of course, uh, I suppose leaving South Bend in the wintertime is understandable. Uh, Perhaps many of you who are residents of Washington, D.C. and doing important work here might understand the attraction that he had of being drawn to this remarkable city. Father Hesburgh's role, however, was not one, he's often mentioned, you know, as advisor to all these presidents, but it was not in the capacity of a spiritual guide, not in the way of a sort of personal counselor in the manner of Billy Graham, you know, Billy Graham working with... Richard Nixon getting down on their knees together and praying and so forth and so on. That was Billy Graham. Father Ted was not involved in that kind of thing. He knew the presidents, but he wasn't especially close on a personal level to any of them except Jimmy Carter. Instead, he toiled tirelessly to aid the United States to resolve some of the major issues and challenges it confronted during this tumultuous time. He carried an optimistic temperament into his various engagements, always holding to the conviction that if good people work together, if you get the right people around the table, they could solve even the most difficult of problems. This was the approach he brought to the issue that had bedeviled the United States from its founding to provide justice for African Americans. Hesburgh labored on this issue through his important service on the Civil Rights Commission from 1957 until 1972. Nixon fired him, of course, from the Civil Rights Commission. His sustained commitment to secure civil and voting rights for African-Americans who had suffered long years of shameful discrimination suffices, I would say, in and of itself to win him a place of honor for his public service, that service alone. But Hesburgh's assignments to formal and consequential government roles largely ended with the arrival of the Reagan administration in Washington, DC. Thereafter, he served on the board of the U.S. Institute of Peace, but it was never quite the same after Reagan came. But that did not mean that he ended his efforts to influence national policies. His dogged activism to foster nuclear arms control occupied much of his energies during the 1980s. He made nuclear arms control his big issue, although I would argue it did not have major impact on American policy. Of course, Hesberg's engagement in the public sphere had from early days also been pursued through non-governmental agencies and institutions, as well as through these more formal presidential appointments. And he savored the experience of working with the doyens of the establishment to discern the correct course for the country. Even after elements of the establishment, perhaps best personified by Robert McNamara, imploded over the Vietnam War, Father Ted sustained his involvement in hopes of addressing issues like world hunger, global development, and so on. Yet, as I mentioned earlier, he became caught in the embrace of an increasingly secular liberal establishment and especially through his membership of the board of the Rockefeller Foundation, which he eventually chaired. Sadly, he influenced the establishment much less than perhaps the technocratic and utilitarian establishment swayed or manipulated him. He was, I argue, the accommodating and acceptable priest in those circles. The powerful grip of the establishment upon him is evidenced in his ambivalence regarding the extensive population control efforts supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. Membership in the establishment exacted a painful price because he tempered his commitment on key moral issues that attracted establishment disapproval, most notably opposition to abortion. Father Hesberg's refusal to put at risk the status and acceptance he had gained in elite circles must be seen as an Achilles heel of sorts. Far from shaping public attitudes in key areas where his voice might have made a difference, he increasingly either reflected the liberal political and social agenda or downplayed those areas where he dissented from it. Let me turn to Notre Dame. Father Ted pursued his extensive public service while serving as president of the university. 35 years he served in the position. This position was the one that he deemed, quote, the biggest thing that I could possibly do in my life it was much more significant for him than, say, perhaps serving as a bishop. He once once said, why would I want to be bishop of Omaha, Nebraska, when I've got the world stage to play on as president of Notre Dame? Nothing against Omaha, Nebraska, in case uh, any Omaha natives are here. But even the possibility of directing NASA, which that possibility was brought to him by Jim Webb, who was then the director of NASA, and wanted Hesberg to come on as his deputy and possible successor, even that could not tempt him. Hesberg loves space, he loves speed. He wanted to be the first priest to say mass in space, etc. So that NASA thing was really a temptation for him. But even that could not tempt him to relinquish the reins of the school that he wanted to forge into a great Catholic university. He was an extraordinary institution builder who dramatically enhanced Notre Dame's size and reputation by most secular measures, such as student enrollment, faculty growth, endowment, operating budget, physical facilities. He oversaw the major decisions to transfer ownership from the Congregation of Holy Cross to the Board of Fellows, and of course, in one of his greatest decisions to admit undergraduate women to the university, he set Notre Dame on a course to becoming a significant research university in the United States. He recognized from the outset the importance of raising money for the development of the university, and he proved a prodigious fundraiser. He had natural strengths for leadership and enlisted the aid of dedicated benefactors to support his efforts. He also led Notre Dame in a modern direction, more in the mode of uh, what was termed the reigning Harvard-Berkeley paradigm for American universities. I argue that he did not succeed fully in his ambition to create a great Catholic university. His initial plans outlined in the 1950s were clear and admirable. Any of you who've uh, read the book, I hope you appreciated my effort to try and clarify what his initial ideas were. He did not want to be a mere follower in American higher education. But he promoted a vibrant incarnational vision of Catholic higher education. This is the time when he is trying to recruit notable Catholic intellectuals like Christopher Dawson and Jacques Maritain to come to campus to help form an even more distinctive Catholic university. He wanted to make Notre Dame a new center of Christian culture. He dreamed of sparking a Catholic intellectual revival that would redeem the time. But shaken up by the harsh criticism of Monsignor John Tracy Ellis and others as to the supposed mediocrity of Catholic higher education, Father Ted lost confidence, I think, in the possibilities of the Catholic intellectual tradition and of forging this distinctive institution. He gave up on working to create something that differed notably from the mainstream of American higher education. He played his part in overthrowing the old neo-scholastic synthesis, the old Thomist uh, philosophical outlook, without having a distinctly Catholic approach to replace it. And instead, as the late 50s moved into the 1960s, he settled for making his university more modern in accord with the secular university model, the Harvard Berkeley approach. Influenced by his deepening associations with the important foundations, and with the elite of American higher education, the pursuit of excellence, excellence, as defined by the secular academy, came to dominate his actions. Of course, Father Ted continued to talk of building a great Catholic university. It was his mantra all through his life. But he largely failed both to fashion and implement a viable model for it. He neither recruited effectively nor empowered academic collaborators who might have aided him to do so. Father Hesburgh never achieved his grand goal of constructing a great Catholic university because he never developed the appropriate means to secure that good and essential end. While he surely did his part to raise the finances and to erect the very functional buildings to fulfill his goal, by the way, I'll make no comment about the buildings constructed under Father Ted's uh, guidance of Notre Dame. Those of you familiar uh, with Notre Dame, I can just mention, like... uh, Bishop Pangborn, Keenan Stanford, <laughs> Flanner, Grace, you get the picture. But while Father Ted raised the finances, built the buildings, he never gave sufficient attention to the crucial matters of faculty hiring and content of the curriculum. He failed to effectively address the crucial questions at the heart of a university, namely who teaches and what is taught. Hesburgh's desire that Notre Dame fit comfortably into the American academic milieu and win the respect of the leading American universities won the day. This sentiment contributed to his desire to declare his independence from church authority as revealed in the Land Lake Statement the pressures for assimilation and conformity proved too powerful in the central academic domain of the university. And those pressures were great. I don't deny that for a moment. Yet while Father Ted never managed to successfully develop a coherent model for a modern Catholic university, he did preserve some distinct elements, and his concern about the theology department would be one of those, Additionally, he gave Notre Dame a notable Catholic gloss by maintaining what my colleague Fred Fredoso calls the Catholic neighborhood of the university. That is what usually impresses so much visitors to the campus, perhaps your good selves, the basilica, the dorm chapels, the liturgies, the choirs, The dorm communities, the service activities, the lady on the dome, the grotto, the many religious symbols that adorn the campus, all of which I love, at least outside the classroom, outside the laboratory, Notre Dame maintains the atmosphere of a Catholic school. And I hope that certainly will continue. But... Within the academic heart of the institution, sadly, there was much greater conformity. Now, over the three, more than three decades since Father Hesburgh left the presidency of Notre Dame, discussions and debates have ensued about the Catholic mission and identity of the university. Some of you present in this room are well aware of those uh, debates. Those of you who follow Notre Dame and Catholic higher education know that the Hesburgh legacy is a sort of contested one. Was the price paid for the enhanced academic prestige worth it is a question that should be asked. Is Notre Dame an instantiation of an institution that gained much in the world but lost some of its soul in the process. Certainly the debates at Notre Dame over its Catholicity during the Malloy and now the Jenkins administrations reveal that these questions are live ones and that says something about Notre Dame that there is still a debate there about it. How the Hesburgh legacy is viewed has clear implications for how the present and future are to be navigated. This brings to mind the much quoted observation from William Faulkner that the past is indeed never dead. It's not even past. How Father Hesburgh will ultimately be regarded lies partly in the hands of those of us who follow him. If Notre Dame's present and future is one of continuing secularization, then elements of the course Hesburgh charted surely must be deemed as flawed, at least by those who hold that its legitimate destiny will be fulfilled only when it is a truly great Catholic university. Notre Dame's founder, Edward Soren, hoped that Notre Dame would develop as, quote, a most powerful means for good. Most powerful means for good by preparing young Catholics to go forth and serve well in the world. But he also unflinchingly held that Catholic education was not only about training minds but also about forming character and shaping souls. Forming character, shaping souls. He wanted to prepare good citizens for this world and much more importantly for the next. Father Hesberg deeply admired his legendary predecessor and he believed that Soren had not labored in vain. He described him as my hero, And he saw himself always as fulfilling Soren's vision for the university, and the great graduates of Notre Dame give testimony to some of his success in that regard. But he further believed that he had uh, not labored in vain himself, and he went to his death confident that the Lord would judge kindly his efforts. Now, how the heavenly judgment should be rendered is hardly within our purview. But the details provided in my book suggest that the verdict of history should be a mixed one. There are strengths. There are limitations. Guided by his conscience, Father Hesburgh sought to serve his church, his nation, and his university according to his own lights. He contributed much in that endeavor, but there are some limitations in the record. Comprehending the full details of his life and work can provide valuable lessons for the present and the future as to what to do and what not to do perhaps a new generation of courageous educators in the faith both lay and religious might draw from the story of father theodore martin hesberg an even better way to serve god country and notre dame please pray that they not only emerge but they have the courage to act. Thank you so much.
0: We have some time for some questions, so if you just raise your hand, I'll go ahead and bring the mic to you. So who wants to ask the first question? Don't be shy. Oh, Father Charles does.
1: Father Charles thank you very much. Naming is naming his writer's uh, director.
2: Right? <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Father Miss Campbell. for uh, I, I have to say that I read the book Um, and I enjoyed it uh, enormously. I learned a lot about Father Herzberg, and I'm uh, very sad that I couldn't meet him personally, even if I was in South Bend when he was still alive. Um, I was um, was struck a little bit about when, as you were mentioning, when he tried and succeeded to remove the university from the uh, church oversight, as you were mentioning, right? I was struck how the, um, he did that with the consent and the vote of at least, I don't know if it was the province of the religious order, right? And, uh, and afterwards, as well, by the consent of, of the church, because yeah. the, 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 the decision was made eventually in the Vatican, right? So what what were the reasonings for um, not just Father Hesburgh, but the other, um, his, um, you know, um, m- brothers, you know, in the congregation? Um, and also, is it not true that even if there was to be no oversight from the church, um, there could be still a good Catholic university, you know? Yeah. So, okay. and, and I don't know if right now, with the current system that he established, right? It, I, my understanding is that there is a board of trustees, correct? That there were there are five or six um, members from the religious order, correct? And then five of s- or six lay people, right? Yeah. So, how? Six of each. Six, of the s- exactly, exactly. The fellows, yeah. Of the fellows. How can this be? Uh, used for Notre Dame to be a Catholic university, you know, with this structure that we have right now. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that question. Well, what explains the position of the order? (coughs) Father Hesberg's amazing persuasiveness and his charisma had an impact within the order. Remember, the practice from the institution of the Code of Canon Law in 1917 had been for the superiorship of the religious community and the presidency of the university to be linked together. So uh, through the 20s and 30s and 40s, a president served a six-year term, and then, canonically, the superior uh, needed to move on, and that's how the presidents had operated. Hesper came in in 1952 expecting that he would have a six-year term, and, you know, he sprinted the whole way, but he was such a brilliant institution builder and seemed so obviously successful and had become president at such an early age, president at 35, so he's only 41 after six years, and no obvious successor. Father Joyce, who was the executive vice president, normally the position that, you know, the person being groomed to succeed, Father Joyce said, no way, I'm very happy where I am. Let's keep our partnership together. So uh, the superiorship and the presidency were separated. Father Ted continued on. So by the time of the mid to late 60s, he has established himself where it's not even thought of within the order that anybody else would take on the position, and he is seen as so successful in his leadership of the university, particularly in his fundraising success, that uh, folks are like, oh, I should be pretty much accorded. He knows what he's doing, etc. And in the order, there was a smaller group who were seen as traditionalists, conservatives, who raised some questions. They were quickly marginalized. Father Ted was seen in accord with the spirit of the age. This is Vatican II was uh, met from 62 to 65. So Father Ted is able to present these proposals that he comes forth for the transfer of ownership as in accord with the second vatican council so the combination of his own personal charisma and being able to enlist the second vatican council as sort of an endorser of his action and it was beginning to occur at the jesuit schools as well and father ted's argument was well, this will make us more normal in american higher education so uh, uh, the, the uh, order pretty much went along Father Ted's great friend I go into this detail Howard, his nickname was Doc Kenner had become provincial and they worked as a, as a duo in this matter And uh, the previous superior general, a more conservative person, Christopher O'Toole, had finished his term, and a French-Canadian guy had become the superior general. So Father Ted had willing collaborators within the order in leadership positions. They were able to move it through. So that explains to some extent why it, it moved through. Father Ted still bore a certain resentment to those few CSCs who had opposed it who said, this is not the direction we should, uh, we should go. Um, the fact that the structure that Ed Steppen, the Chicago lawyer, who was a great collaborator of Father Ted's, came up with, of six Holy Cross priests and six laypersons who were the technical owners of Notre Dame as the Board of Fellows, soothed some anxieties that Holy Cross would be completely marginalized in the institution. So that new structure also undercut some of the opposition. The approval in Rome moved through fairly quickly, the argument being Pope Paul VI, uh, you know, was except Father Ted knew him well, and uh, he's the pope that Father Ted was closest to, so that secured approval there. I agree completely. There's nothing in the structure that Notre Dame adopted. There's nothing in uh, any of the uh, documents that have been accepted that necessitates Notre Dame going in a more secular direction. The reality is that no decision is ever made of that sort. Uh, Those of you who study American higher education uh, might be familiar with a book. My colleague Steve Brady would know, uh, George Marsden's Soul of the American University. Marsden studied secularization in Protestant schools, all those schools that have enormous big chapels like Duke and Vanderbilt and so on. How did they secularize? It wasn't that one day they had a big debate and they decided, yes, we're going in this direction rather than that direction, it's bit by bit. It's faculty appointment by faculty appointment. So that's the reality at Notre Dame. And that's where I would say Father Ted was not as attentive because he, he pretty much he had too much else going on. He wasn't watching what was going on in terms of faculty appointments, et cetera, et cetera. So I would argue hey, that's still the issue today, recruiting people who believe in the Catholic mission of the university. And I'm glad to say it's still a debate at Notre Dame. Sometimes you can get a little uh, down on what the prospects are, and you you look around and you see, you know, 140 faculty endorsing some transgender ideology and so forth, as happened a week or two before the end of last semester and you go what the heck uh, but um, our lady is going to look after us in the end I've got to be assured of that yeah
3: um, one of the things I would suggest is that you read the alumni news and go to the back of the magazine every few months oh I do and look I look up all my former students I know I <laughs> <laughs> um And what you see are good people who are doing good things. Yeah. Whoever owns the university is, you know, an accountant's dream or whatever. But it has nothing to do with the spirit of the people who come out, who spend their lives. Yes, most of them are business or financial successes. But they're also successful in doing a lot of very good things. Oh, yeah. And it's the inspiration of someone like Father Ted. Who created that, yes, they needed to go secular because that 's how you fund an organization such as he was creating, but everybody says there's no great Catholic university. Give me a model that has no, no come onto shape. It that is more Catholic um, I graduated fifty years this coming June yeah and You can travel where you want, and I would love to have somebody point out a place that actually does a
1: better job. I am only too delighted to pay tribute to the great contributions of the Notre Dame alumni. If if Notre Dame, over the long haul, sustains its identity as a Catholic school, it will be because of alumni's involvement and engagement. By the way, uh, you know, I also look at other colleges and universities. And, of course, as we know, the people who submit things to the alumni reports, there's wonderful work being done by the graduates of Vanderbilt and so on. So I don't want to overstate that Notre Dame somehow or other is the only place that's producing alumni who serve in the world, etc. But Notre Dame does have a terrific base of good people who are out there. Now, here is a question that I, I, you know, worry about. Will that be sustained when the folks who graduate, who are heavily influenced by their dorm experience, by their service opportunities, by what I call the Catholic neighborhood, will they be sustained in that if what they get in the academic heart runs contrary to Catholic mission? That's the great danger that we have to avoid. So I'm all for sustaining alumni who want to go forth and serve God and society. Good citizens for the earthly city, good citizens for the heavenly city. But Notre Dame has to be about preparing good citizens for the heavenly city as well as just the earth it's every place now every place is on the service bandwagon every place secular state schools etc notre dame has to be about more more than that we're about shaping character and souls yeah thanks for your question yeah i i, I want to say it worked before father you know, it's, it's been a tradition of Notre Dame that people who have come there have wanted to serve society. So I want to say it's worked from the days of Father Soren.
4: Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for the book. I'm, I'm a double-domer, and I must overlap with you. Uh, I graduated in 72 from college and then 76 from the law school. So I loved uh, your book. I mean, thank you, you. I was there for the pornography Uh, (laughs) Conference, the raid of the South Bend Police for Kodak Ghost poems, (laughs) the failed merger with St. Mary's, the going co-ed. My class was the last Mm -hmm. class in 72 to graduate when it was all men, but I was back for the law school. And I do think Ted Hesburgh's greatest contribution is he did put Notre Dame on the map, and I think you give him credit for that. You make it clear that he took the university from being sort of a school mainly known for football to being a premier university. I also agree with you that he paid a great price for it. And I, I think if you you are more than fair to him from my experience. You know, we lost a lot through those years, but like my colleague, I think the people who go there, both my daughters are graduates from yeah. Notre Dame and my son went there for a while. Um, but um, <laughs> it is we won't we won't go there. We won't, there. <laughs> <laughs> we won't touch that. A lot, a lot of issues there, but but <laughs> it's the people who go there, as you say. And I, I think while I don't think they're in a leadership position, the souls that are there I think nonetheless prevail over so much of yeah. what the university still is. Whether the people in charge really care about that or want that, I think there's real hope for that. Now having said that, I'd like your comments since uh, Father Charles stole my question on how, they, how he ever tricked the order into turning over the university to a lay board. I'm spe- jumping forward quite a bit this new discussion about whether or not they're still gonna require theology courses strikes me as going right to the heart of the question. And we don't need to be like all the other secular universities. And I can't see how it hurts someone to take those courses as part of a liberal arts uh, requirement. Could you comment on that? Yeah. Well, the debate
1: in the most recent curriculum review about the place of theology and philosophy Now, uh, some folks would critique what was being offered in those courses to begin with, but the fact that there was debate about them, I think, raises some concerns about where the faculty is and, you know, do we really need theology? Uh, I'm glad to report I was a participant in a meeting that Holy Cross Religious had with uh, the chair of that review committee, and a couple of other, couple of other members. And uh, dare I say, uh, Father Malloy, who's not the most emotional and, you know, engaging uh, person, he was sort of like the rock on Easter Island with his arms folded, and he said, I'm telling you, don't change the theology requirement. Folks, like like, whoa! Monk's getting worked up about something, (laughs) aside from basketball. Uh, So uh, I think uh, uh, while uh, the Holy Cross contribution is probably muted in many ways uh, on that one, uh, it was certainly preserved. And uh, while philosophy had uh, changes made to that requirement... Uh, My complaint about the, now that you've introduced the matter, about the curriculum review, it's still just a bunch of distribution requirements. You pick something there, you pick something there. There's no sense that we're providing some sort of integrated education for what perhaps an educated Catholic should know. Uh, Is it beyond our capability to provide that with all the enormous resources that we now have? Um, I would say that should be an ambition for Notre Dame to provide that kind of education. Uh, Just go back to your earlier point. Notre Dame attracts wonderful students, you see? So when you get these students who come, uh, in some ways it's a bit like medicine, you know, first do no harm. Uh, They come with such good convictions, but again... I think there are challenges ahead because the uh, incoming generation are much less schooled in religious practice and belief. And so it's, it's more of a challenge. You're more likely to hear these days, why do I have to take theology and philosophy? I just, I, I'm just here to study business. You know, we were ranked number one in business for quite a time. And uh, that attracted quite a few students who were very... I, I used to say to, to kids who would raise this to me, not that too many of them did if they knew any of my convictions, I would say, look, look, I think you should transfer to the Wharton School. And they'd be like, what, what? And I would say, no, you've come to Notre Dame for a distinctive educational experience. That's why, that's why you're here. And, of course, then I would twist it on them and I would say, this is going to make you a better business person, no matter what area you go into, etc. Believe me, it will. I usually left my office in a slightly better frame of mind. Uh, yeah, sorry, Steve. Um, oh. um, let's give uh, uh, Father Miss Campbell another round of applause.
4: Thank you very much, folks.